When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. And you're on right now with Jim Dawes on the Mojo 5.0 Radio Network. Your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an American nationalist perspective. You can find us on demand on Spreaker, iTunes, TuneIn, and Spotify. Just about everywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And you can follow us on Twitter at RightNowJimDawes or email me at RightNowJimDawes at gmail.com got a phone line set up you can leave a voicemail to weigh in on the program insult the host or ask a question call in at 772-245-0750 that's 772-245-0750 leave your questions and comments if it's relevant and interesting we'll use your call on a future show yesterday was a busy day listeners oh my god the fireworks going on at the House of Representatives, the newly minted Democrat majority are using their committee hearings to try to smear the Trump campaign and further their uh, Russia collusion delusion. And uh, the two I'm going to focus on on today's show were the uh, hearing to harangue Robert, uh, I mean, uh, B- Bill Barr. Uh, They tried to make it out that he's somehow, you know, trying to cover up the Mueller report, which would be ridiculous anyway, because, you know, at some point, one of these uh, rabid Democrats that Mueller used to try to um, go after the president is going to leak this report. It's a patently absurd accusation on its face. And what's going on here is the Democrats have uh, been called out and exposed for pushing this lie on the American public for the last two years and using Robert Mueller to try to cover up the uh, misdeeds at the highest levels of the CIA and the FBI. And now they're uh, pretending like they must have this Mueller report right now, right now. We, got, we can't wait. we got to see it all. You'll remember that back when the uh, Republicans ran the House, and they were trying to get uh, the FISA warrants released. The Democrats were arguing just the opposite. Oh, you can't uh, release any of this stuff because uh, sources and methods, and it's classified information, and you can't release this, and if you do release it, you got to redact it all. They fought tooth and nail to keep the American people from finding out what was in those um, uh, FISA warrants. Now... They're saying that, oh, we absolutely have to release everything in this Mueller report. We don't care if it's grand jury testimony. We don't care if it's compromising sources and methods or classified information. The American people want it. We got to have it right now, right now. You know, they, they were demanding that uh, you, you get it out there in the public right now. So Barr felt pressured to release 
uh, the findings of Mueller as soon as possible. And he did that within just a day of Mueller's uh, submitting his report. And then they complained about that. Oh, how could you possibly release a summary of the report? You should have just released all of the report. And now that he's promising to release as much of the report that law will allow, they're complaining about that, that it's not fast enough that he's got to hurry up and he can't, uh, he can't follow the law on anything. He's got to, just got to release it all. And you know what this is. This is just more deflection, more uh, uh, useless noise designed to keep the administration on the defensive and, and, uh, and keep the administration and the new attorney general from looking into the misdeeds of the Obama administration, misusing our intelligence and law enforcement agencies in a political way to go after the presidential candidate of the opposing party. They cannot allow uh, any sort of investigation into that. But guess what? Bob Barr, I keep saying Bob Barr, I I keep, uh, that's the former uh, Republican congressman from Metro Atlanta that uh, I'm associated or uh, affiliated with. And uh, and I, uh, I keep misstating that. But Bill Barr has told them that he's, uh, he's going to uh, look into that as well. We'll get to that later. But um, I just want to start out, let me get on the right uh, page here, uh, by playing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to first play Nita Lowy's opening statement at this House Judiciary Committee hearing, where she starts rambling on and on, and, uh, you know, uh, this fevered conspiracy theory that somehow Bill Barr is trying to keep the truth from the American public when, in fact, the truth's been obvious to anybody that's willing to uh, uh, see reality. But uh, Nita Lowy makes a very uh, illustrative uh, uh, example of the new Democrat strategy of, of trying to say that somehow this, there's more to this report than Bill Barr is letting on. I want to address a serious oversight matter, your unacceptable handling of special counsel Robert Mueller's report. It's been reported that the report... It's been reported? It's been reported? Reported by who? So Robert Mueller's report. It's been reported that the report is 300 to 400 pages... And I use the term reported because we have no idea how long it actually is. All we have is your four-page summary, which seems to cherry-pick from the report to draw the most favorable conclusion possible for the president. And in many ways, your letter raises more question than it answers. I must say it is extraordinary to evaluate hundreds of pages of evidence, legal documents, and finding based on a 22-month-long inquiry and make definitive legal conclusions in less than 48 hours. Well, it absolutely is. But guess who was demanding that Barr release Mueller's findings within 48 hours? It was these same Democrats that are now complaining that he uh, he released this summary. 
They were demanding as soon as the Mueller report was re- uh, released that Barr immediately uh, disclose the findings to Congress. He obviously couldn't do that because it had to be uh, have grand jury testimony and classified information. So he complied with their request. And he put the bottom line executive summary of what was contained in the report. And now they're complaining about that. And the next thing they're going to complain about is that Barr has to redact this information that he cannot by law release. And it will be something for the Democrats to uh, pick at a bone for them to chew on for the next uh, 22 months running up to the election to try to deflect what actually went on in the 2016 campaign, and that is the Obama administration, and I believe Obama knew all about what was going on, weaponized the CIA and the FBI in order to go after a political campaign opponent, just as they had weaponized the IRS in order to go after conservative groups in the prior election cycle. But the great thing about all of this is Bob Barr is kind of a a methodical, unexcitable, quite frankly, teddy bear looking kind of guy who doesn't get, uh, get sucked into any of these things, doesn't take anything personally, just explains to these wild-eyed Democrats on these committees as if he's talking to children exactly what's going on and why he's doing all this. Uh, he doesn't take any of their bait. And, uh, and here is sort of a long clip. It's, it runs almost three minutes, but I want you to Barr says it better than I ever could, exactly what's going on here uh, as far as what he's allowed to release and what he's not and, uh, and how he's going to go through this process. As I've said, as you pointed out, since my confirmation, I do think it's important that the public have an opportunity to, to, to learn the results of the, of, uh, the special counsel's work. And I said then that I would work diligently to make as much information uh, public as I could and available to Congress as I could. You will recognize that I'm operating under a regulation that uh, was put together during the Clinton administration and does not provide for the publication of the report. But I am uh, relying on my own discretion uh, to make as much public as I can. Now, in my letter of the t- March 29th, I identified four areas that I feel should be redacted, and I think most people would agree. The first is grand jury information, 6E material. The second is information that the, ICE, the intelligence community believes would reveal intelligence sources and methods. The third uh, are information in the report that could interfere with ongoing prosecutions. Uh, you will recall that uh, the special counsel did spin off a number of cases that are still being pursued, and we want to make sure that none of the information in the report would impinge upon either the ability of the prosecutors to prosecute the cases or the fairness to the defendants. And finally, uh, uh, we uh, intend to redact information uh, that implicates the privacy or reputational interests of peripheral players where there is a decision not to charge them. Uh, right now, the special counsel is working with us on identifying information in the reports that fall under those four categories. We will color code the excisions from the report, and we will provide explanatory notes describing the basis uh, for each 
redaction. So, for example, if a redaction is made because of a court order in a pending prosecution, we'll state that and we will dis- we will uh, uh, distinguish between the various categories. This process is going along uh, very well, and uh, my original timetable uh, of being able to release this uh, uh, by mid April stands. And so I, I think that uh, from my standpoint, uh, by the by uh, within a week, uh, I will be in a position to release the report to the public, and then I will. Uh, engage with the chairman of both judiciary committees about that report and about any further requests that they have. The beauty of Bill Barr's uh, response to these circularless allegations against him is that they're so uh, even-handed and reasonable and just matter-of-fact that it really uh, shows that the Democrats are absolutely out of control. You know, when... when um, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and um, and the others on the House Judiciary Committee wanted to see those FISA requests. Uh, that was drug out for weeks and weeks, and the Democrats flooded the zone on all of the TV talking heads stations. Uh, you know, why this couldn't possibly be released? That They were blocking information. They were covering up. Now, the Mueller report that's uh, 400 pages long by some accounts has been out for two weeks, and they they, uh, demand that it be released right now without any redactions whatsoever. Totally hypocritical on their part. But uh, Barr gets to why why exactly they're in such a frenzy, because they know that the spotlight is about to be turned back on the Democrats and the Obama administration for uh, the campaign spying, and uh, here's um, one of the panel members, the Democrat panel members, um, trying to uh, knock him off and dissuade him from going down that path in his response. Today, that you have a special team looking into why the FBI opened an investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 elections. Uh, I wonder if you can share with this committee who's on that team why you felt a need to form that kind of a team and what you intend to be the scope of their investigation. What she's doing here is trying to find out who's on it, what, they, what they're going to investigate so they can, uh, they can get back out there and try to discredit the effort before it even gets started. They want as much information as possible to feed uh, to their uh, mouthpieces at the New York Times and the Washington Post and the cable channels to try to um, discredit the first serious uh, look into the Obama administration's actions since all of this came to light. And again, Barr's uh, response is perfectly reasonable and, and perfectly justified. Yeah, I, uh, as I said in my confirmation hearing, uh, I am going to be reviewing uh, both the genesis and the conduct of intelligence activities directed uh, against at the the Trump campaign during 2016. Uh, And uh, a lot has already been, a lot of this has already been investigated and a substantial portion of it has been investigated and is being investigated by uh, the Office of uh, Inspector General. Let me just stop right there and remind everybody, the Office of Inspector General, not just in the DOJ, but in any government bureaucracy, is not designed to get to the truth. 
It's designed to be able to say we're conducting an investigation while still protecting the agency that the, gen- that the uh, inspector general is working for. They're not there to get to the truth. They're there to protect the reputation and the uh, personnel in that organization by being able to say, we conducted an investigation and we didn't find any uh, wrongdoing. So if you're looking to the inspector general, um, now they would, they will on occasion toss some of the small fish to the wolves or to mix metaphors, but they're not going to uh, really go after the people that at the top. And they're especially not going to take it right into the white house where all of this will ultimately lead um, who knows where this uh, this investigation from the uh, associate attorney general out in Utah is headed? He is uh, he's been a ghost investigation. But uh, back to this clip from Bill Barr department. Uh, but one of the things I want to do is pull together all the information from the various investigations that have gone on, including on the Hill uh, and in the department and uh, see if there are any remaining questions uh, to be addressed. And can you share with us why you feel a need to do that? Why do you need to do that? Why do we need to investigate the spying that went on in the, in the, uh, in the 2016 presidential election? Well, uh, you know, for the same well, for the same reason, we're worried about foreign uh, influence in elections. We want to make sure that uh, during an election, I, I think spying on a political campaign is a big deal. It's a big deal. Uh, generation I grew up in, which is the Vietnam War uh, period, you know, people were all concerned about spying on uh, anti-war people and so forth by the government. And there were a lot of rules put in place to make sure that there's an adequate basis before before our law enforcement agencies get involved in poli- you know, political uh, surveillance. I'm not suggesting that uh, those rules were violated, but I think it's important to look at that. And I'm not, just, I'm not talking about the FBI uh, necessarily, but intelligence agencies more broadly. So you're not, you're not suggesting, though, that spying occurred? You're not suggesting that spying occurred? Oh, my God. They're they're back to the the, uh, the the talking points that they used right after Trump said, "Well, they were spying on my campaign," which has been thoroughly discredited at this point. And you're going to love Barr's response to that. I don't. Uh, well, uh, I guess you could. I, I think there's spying did occur. Yes, I think spying did occur. Well, let me. But the uh, question is whether it was predicated, adequately predicated. And I'm not suggesting it wasn't adequately predicated, but I'd need to explore that. I think it's my obligation. Congress is usually very concerned about intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies staying in their proper lane. And I want to make sure that happened. We have a. (laughs) I'm telling you, chills just went down the spine of these. uh these Republicans on these committees that have been running interference and covering up for the Obama administration's wrongdoing for the last two and a half years. They know that a guy's in there that's not going to be knocked off of his, his uh, duty to clean up um, what went on during the 2016 presidential election. And the beauty of, of Barr's response is he puts it in context. A lot of rules about that. And 
uh, I want to say that that uh, I've said I'm reviewing this. I am going. I haven't set up a team yet, but I do have. I have in mind having some colleagues help me pull all this information together and, and let me know whether there's some areas that should be looked at. And I also want to make clear this is not launching an investigation of the FBI. I, uh, frankly, um, um, uh, to the extent there were there were any issues at the FBI, I do not view it as a a, a problem that's endemic to the FBI. Uh, I think there was probably a failure among uh, a group of leaders uh, there. Absolutely, a failure. That's uh, that's a kind word for it. There was uh, malicious intent. And there was misconduct that went on there. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't a mistake. It was uh, actual illegality. They uh, they put together false warrants. You know, a lot of people still, and I've gone over this before, but a lot of people still don't understand the significance of the uh, wiretap authorization from the FISA court on Carter Page. It's the two-hop rule. If you're not familiar with the two-hop rule, I want you to familiarize yourself with it. It says that uh, under the NSA spying FISA warrants, they can not only listen to all the phone calls that the, the target of the warrant makes, but they, look, they can listen to all the calls of anybody that he speaks to makes, the two-hop rule. So you can go from uh, uh, eavesdropping and surveilling one person to literally close to a million people, depending on, on how far that, out that reaches. And what they what they did with Carter Page is they basically got a FISA warrant that allowed them to spy on the entire Trump campaign. That's not pointed out often enough. Man, we're running out of time. I really wanted to cover um, um, uh, Candace Owens' testimony before um, I think it was Nadler's committee. That would be be the House Oversight Committee. They put together a a show hearing designed to smear the president and his supporters as white nationalists. And um, to their great credit, the Republicans marched Candace Owens in there and really called them out on what's exactly going on. So we've got about three minutes left in this segment. I'm going to play Candace's opening statement as much of it as I can before we go out to the break. And then after we come back from that break, we're going to hear from Ernst Roots on his new book, Killing the Boar, which uh, covers the um, farm murders in South Africa and the um, the real specter of a genocide of the remaining white people in South Africa. But here's uh, uh, Candace Owens opens before the uh, before the House Oversight Committee. Uh, thank you for having me here today. I received word on my way in that many of the journalists were confused as to why I was invited, and none of them knew uh, that I myself uh, was the victim of a hate crime when I was in high school. That's something that very few people know about me, uh, because the media and the journalists and the left are not interested in telling the truth about me, because I don't fit the stereotype of what they like to see in black people. I'm a Democrat, I support the President of the United States, and I advocate for things that are actually affecting the black community. I'm honored to be here today in front of you all because the person sitting behind me is my 75-year-old grandfather. I've always considered myself to be my grandfather. We're going to skip 
past that a little bit and get to the meat of her opening. Brown today because what they want to say is that brown people need to be scared, which seems to be the narrative that we hear every four years right ahead of a presidential election. Here are some things we never hear. 75% of the black boys in California don't meet state reading standards. In inner cities like Baltimore, within five high schools and one middle school, not a single student was found to be proficient in math or reading in 2016. The single single motherhood rate in the black community, which was at 23% in the 1960s when my grandfather was coming up, is at a staggering 74% today. I am guessing there will be no committee hearings about that. There are more black babies born, there are more black babies aborted than born alive in cities like New York, and you have Democrat Governor Andrew Cuomo lighting up buildings to celebrate late-term abortions. I could go on and on, but my point is that white white nationalism did not do any of those things that I just brought up. Democrat policies did. Let me be clear. Oh my Here God. today is not about white nationalism or hate crimes. It's about fear-mongering, power, and control. It's a preview of a Democrat 2020 election strategy, same as the Democrat 2016 election strategy. They blame Facebook, they blame Google, they blame Twitter. Really, they blame the birth of social media, which has disrupted their monopoly on minds. We're going to leave it right there. If you haven't listened to that entire opening and uh, and Owen's testimony before the committee, I would uh, urge you to do that. It is outstanding. Come back after the break and join us to hear from Ernst's Roots on killing the boar, the government's, South African government's complicity in the murder of white farmers, right after these messages on Right Now with Jim Dawes. As you make plans this season, consider convenient COVID-19 testing from Quest. Get the same test hospitals use without a doctor visit. Simply order online, select from drive through or at-home options, and get the results sent securely to your phone or computer. It's a great fit for your busy life. With over 20 million COVID-19 tests processed, you can count on Quest. So order your test today at questcovid19.com. That's questcovid19.com. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwans.com backslash yum for details. It's been 25 years since apartheid ended and Nelson Mandela's African National Congress came to power in South Africa. The ANC has held on to power ever since, and the nation has been racked by soaring crime, poverty, and government corruption. Lately, there's been a rise of a party called the Economic Freedom Fighters, led by a radical Marxist named Julius Malema. The EFF has advocated confiscating white farmers' land and made a campaign theme of slaughtering the white minority. Not surprisingly, this has spawned an epidemic of brutal murders of white farmers, including women and children. Our guest is Ernst Rotes, author of Kill the Boar, Government Complicity in South Africa's Brutal Farm Murders, which you can find on Amazon. Rotes is a constitutional lawyer and civil rights activist, 
and he joins us right now. Ernst Roots, thank you for this important book, and thank you for speaking out on this topic. Thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure to speak to you, and thank you for, for giving me this opportunity to, to talk to your listeners about, about what's happening in South Africa. So how many whites are left in South Africa, and how many have fled? Well, the, the numbers are, there's a bit of uncertainty regarding the numbers, but there has been studies which have found that about half a million have left the country uh, in, in, in the last two decades or so. Um, the, the, in terms of uh, white people, the uh, white people remain a fairly small minority. South Africa has about 56 million people, of which about 80% are uh, black people, uh, black Africans. Um, uh, the white minority constitute about uh, three to four million people in South Africa. It's, it's roughly about eight percent of of the population. And how many of that eight uh, percent are the uh, legacy settlers, Afrikaners, uh, working still working the land? Do you yeah. do you figure? Yes. Yeah. So so we use use the term Afrikaners, although the word Boer is actually more prominently used in, internationally. Um, uh, in terms of the Afrikaners or the Boers in South Africa, they are about, of which I am one, we, there are, they are about 2.7 million of us uh, in South Africa. And um, interesting, the word Boer is, is derived from a word which actually means farmers because the, the, the ethnic community or the cultural community known as the Afrikaners or the Boers are so closely related or linked to, to the activity of farming that they've actually been named after the, the occupation to, to frame it as such. Um, and this is also particularly relevant when we're talking about the violence that we see on, on South Africa's farms and the targeting of minorities in South Africa by the government and by, by other more radical parties, such as the economic freedom fighters, whom you've mentioned in your introduction. You know, I remember back in the 80s uh, when the divestiture movement was going on and the pressure was on F.W. to clerk to uh, end apartheid and free Nelson Mandela. And uh, the concern of a lot of people was Nelson Mandela was, um, you know, a a communist. And um, it was predicted that, uh, you know, at some point, uh, communism would uh, would find a foothold in South Africa. I'm surprised that it's taken 25 years, but with the rise of um, this uh, Julius Malema, and I, I want to play a clip for the listeners just to give them a taste of what um, what kind of politician. But he actually sits in the South African Parliament, uh, and this is yeah. just a short clip of Malema at one of his campaign rallies. <laughs> Now that is just absolutely chilling incitement to to really genocide. And it's just amazing that the world has turned a blind eye to this, largely turned a blind eye to this. I was, I was telling Ernst in, uh, when we were talking before, the, the blackout of the mainstream media over here is almost complete. Just give us a, some broad outlines of the political situation over there and uh, the likelihood that Julius Malema uh, could be- 
be elected president of South Africa. So maybe just to start with a clip that you played in case the listeners couldn't couldn't hear properly. Um, it was a political rally, and he was chanting. It's not a. You could hear clearly. It's not really a song or a chant, a political chant. So he was chanting, uh, "Shoot to kill, kill a man," and then um, he was singing the song. He, he changed the words. There's a well-known song in South Africa called "Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer," which is often sung at, at political gatherings, and the song has been declared to be hate speech. And so what Malema has done is he. He sort of made a mockery of the whole thing, and now he keeps singing the song, uh, but he, he changed the words to kiss the boer, kiss the farmer. But of course, we all know, while, while he's doing this, he's making hand gestures and he's shooting people. And um, then towards the end, he was he was making a he was making a sound um, going which is to imitate, imitate the sound of a machine gun of you know shooting people. So Julius Malema was actually the pre- the youth president, the president of the youth league of the ruling party. He was expelled from the ruling party not for being racist, but for publicly criticizing the president. He then went on to establish his own political party, which is more radical and more aggressively uh, Marxist than than the ANC, which is also a Marxist uh, movement. And he he currently enjoys about just probably about 10% support in South Africa. But the interesting thing about the dynamics in South African politics is that Julius Malema is, uh, and his party is sort of the tag, the tail wagging the dog in the sense that they are a fairly small party by comparison to the leading party, but they are the ones calling the shots. They are the ones, they, for example, are the ones who, who tabled this motion that private property has to be confiscated by the state without compensation. And then the ruling party supported him in doing this. So I think it's not unfeasible or unrealistic to expect that in the future there might be some negotiation process where Julius Malema will probably demand uh, for for the two parties to 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 join again to meld together, and then he would probably demand something that he has to be made deputy president or or some cabinet senior cabinet minister position or something like that. It's it's not an unrealistic. Um, expectation for something to happen in South Africa in the future. I watched a clip uh, from the deliberations in Parliament about uh, the land confiscation. They call it expropriation without compensation. And Malema was absolutely um, bullying the majority party into compliance with this demand and threatening them, um, alluding to, uh, you know, terrible things happening to them if they stood in the way of his uh, his radical Marxist party. So, tell us how bad this uh, this problem is. How many how many farmers have been murdered? Are they obviously political, or is this just in, driven by racial incitement by uh, Julius Malema and his ilk? Well, um, the problem with the whole topic of farm murders or farmers being killed is that it's it's quite a complicated phenomenon, so it's hard to generalize. Um, I can tell you without a doubt that some of these murders happen strictly due to political reasons, and I can say that for certain because some of the murderers have faked that. Um, after murdering a farmer, they were so intestinary that they did so because they were influenced, for example, by the song Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer, or they are a member of some political movement, and that's why they killed this person. Of course, there are cases where it's let's call it robbery gone wrong, where a person tries to rob fuel from a farm and then something happens and eventually someone gets killed. That also happens. Uh, but if we talk about the numbers and 
my approach in writing the book was to stick to the to, to the conservative numbers. In other words, not to give estimates of how many people have been killed, but to give the at least amount. So we, we have a list of the victims of these attacks where we keep track of the cases that we could verify. And the names on that list is, those are the names that we could verify. And then on that list, we have about 2,000 names of people who have been murdered during these attacks uh, in South Africa since the year 1990. Um, So it's about 2,000 people. And it's something that's not really spoken about uh, internationally. Well, I've seen some of the photographs of these um, uh, brutal crime scenes, and um, I can't remember the uh, criminologist term, but the, these are murders of um, of uh, vengeance and hatred. Uh, they're not simply mm-hmm. to to kill, but um, there's actually been torture taking place and uh, mutilation of the bodies, including women and even uh, little babies. Um, yeah. And it it seems to be all part of, uh, you know, a general atmosphere that's being uh, whipped up in the population to uh, to resent and hate uh, the uh, the Boers uh, because, uh, you know, they're working the land. But um, and and Malima's uh, broad campaign theme is that uh, the Afrikaans stole uh, that land from the blacks, but my understanding of history, and correct me if I'm wrong, is uh, South Africa was largely undeveloped when uh, when the Dutch arrived uh, in South Africa, and uh, most of the black population came there uh, because of, uh, you know, the economic development. Yes. Well, there's many ways to answer that question, and one is to, to point to the fact that South Africa is, and that's not a, it's, it's an undeniable fact that South Africa is actually a fairly dry country. A large part of the country is desert uh, or semi-desert. And it's not possible to survive on more than 30% of South Africa's surface if you do not have the technology to dig a borehole. Um, so that's one way of looking at it or, or dispelling this claim that, that if you are white and you own land in South Africa, then by definition you, you must have stolen that land. The other thing is just that history is much more complicated than that. It's true that there were injustices with regard to land that happened under the apartheid system where the, the idea was to create different homelands for different peoples. And, and in trying to achieve this, what the apartheid government did was to, to forcibly move people to say, well, this area is going to be for the whites and this area is going to be for, let's say, the Zulu people or the Khoza people. And so if you lived in the wrong area, they forcibly moved people. And you could say that that was an injustice and that has to be corrected. But that happened in particular areas in South Africa, and it, ha- it, was, uh, it, it impacted on particular communities that be, who could be traced back today. You can see who are the people who were affected. Um, and that's why we say that, that we support the idea of restitution of land as opposed to redistribution. And the difference is restitution means we have to look at was there a community that was forcibly moved off their land, then they should either get the land back or they should be compensated if they haven't been compensated for that. Um, but redistribution is what the current, what the government is pushing for at the moment, and that's to say, it's basically to say if you are white and you own land, then by definition you are a criminal. And I've spoken with a representative of the Department of Land Reform about this, and I asked him some questions, and, and it sounds completely lunatic, but let me, let me explain to you briefly what he said to me. So, so they, they have this, this notion that if 80% of the land is not owned by black people, then it's a sign of injustice. 
And I then asked him, well, how, uh, what do they do if they, for example, give a, a farm to a black person and that black person then chooses to sell the property that was given to him in instinct of, of, of correcting this historic injustice? He then chooses to sell the farm and it's then bought by a white person. And the response by, by the, the, of the government official working for the Department of Land Reform is if a black person sells a farm that was given to him, to a white person, then the correction of the injustice has been reversed. In other words, we then have to take that farm again uh, and give it to, to a black person again. Um, and so it's completely lunatic, but there's another twist, and that is that the aim is not really to hand out title deeds uh, or to, to convert property into private property. It's, it's in true Marxist terminology, the, the notion or the sentiment is that the government is the people. So when they say that we need to give the land to the people, what they are actually saying is we need to take the land and we need to vest it in the government, and then the government will control the land and decide what has to be done with the land. And that's what we see currently, currently happening in South Africa, where the amount of land, the South African government already controls more than a quarter of all land in South Africa, and the land that they are accumulating is just increasing. Uh, and the land that they are giving away... Uh, as title deeds to it happens very slowly in South Africa. Well, we've seen this movie before in Zimbabwe uh, where, um, uh, uh, remind me of the president's name, um, uh, Robert Mugabe. Mugabe. Um, in order to hold on to power, uh, promised uh, the population that they Mm. were going to take the white farmer's land and redistributed. Of course, it was redistributed to Mugabe's um, cronies uh, who had no knowledge or really intention of working the land and and keeping it in production. And it prompted uh, widespread famines and and economic collapse. Does the uh, South African government not understand that... um, uh, that if they uh, go down that same path, they will have that same result? Well, the, the strange thing about these socialist movements is that there's always someone else to blame. I mean, you know, you probably heard this thing that, you know, real socialism has never been tried. You have to keep doing this. So it failed in Russia, it failed in China, it failed in Vietnam, and then Cambodia and in Cuba and in Zimbabwe and in North Korea, but we just need to try it one more time. Um, and there's always a scapegoat. There's always someone to blame. So, so the position of the South African government, or the ruling party at least, with regard to Zimbabwe, is that the reason why Zimbabwe has failed is because of America. And um, just last week, two weeks ago, the, the, the ruling party in South Africa sent a delegation to Venezuela, and they used the hashtag, hands off Venezuela. Um, to show, as they describe it, I'm using their words, to show solidarity with President Maduro against the imperialist forces. And then they came back, and uh, this senior delegation came, went back to South Africa and said what they saw there was what could happen to a country if the West intervenes. In other words, everything that Venezuela is simply because it's simply America's fault. And, and therefore, they, they, they seem to think that if they do the same thing as Zimbabwe, although they have the caveat, they, they, we, we are inspired by what happened in Zimbabwe, but we want to do it without violence. So they would say, they would make claims like that, and then they seem to believe that that what, what the only thing that went wrong was really the West intervening in some way, and we're going to do the same thing and 
apparently now the West isn't going to intervene and we're going to create, and, and this, it might sound crazy, but I'm, I'm actually quoting the South African president who said quite recently that he, he intends to create the Garden of Eden in South Africa. So that's typical Cold War socialist terminology, this creating the ultimate paradise uh, through socialist policy. That, that's where we are in South Africa at the moment. Well, I know uh, you're here tonight to um, explore the plight of um, the rise of Marxism and communism in South Africa. But I've got to say, I see some parallels in the United States with the rise of uh, these uh, wild-eyed mm-hmm. cultural Marxists in the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party seems to have gone whole hog uh, for socialism and just a very thinly veiled form of Marxism itself. Uh, to tell you the truth, I was uh, surprised that it took South Africa 25 years uh, to uh, to start seizing white lands and and for these uh, these murders uh, to really uh, these murders of um, the settlers and the farmers to really come to a head. Um, what do you what is your best guess hmm. of the um, the uh, the prospects uh, for for South Africa as far as uh, uh, you know, a peaceful and prosperous place to live for people of all races? Well, I think there's a few things to be said here. Firstly, uh, yes, we, we look to, to the U.S. and we also see the U.S. as, you know, people use the term the leader of the free world. And we are quite concerned to see people in the U.S. also flirting with with these ideas that have, that have failed everywhere in the world where they have been tried. There's actually an, ex- an explanation as to why it took so many years for uh, the, the system to come crumbling down or to start crumbling. And that's because, uh, so during the apartheid system, there, there were a lot of sanctions on South Africa and and the market was very restricted. Then in 1994, the ANC came to power. They actually had what they described as a national, a national democratic revolution. This is, I'm quoting from their policy document. Now. And what it means, it's a two-phase revolution. So phase one is for the movement to present themselves as being liberal and as being in favor of free markets and, and trade and so forth in order to get the popular vote and also in order to get international support. And then, according to them, phase two of this revolution is once they obtain power, they must be, use the mechanisms of the state to further the goals of the revolution. So what happened in South Africa after 1994 was that uh, and also the apartheid system in that they were actually a freeing up of the economy. Um, and despite the fact that the party in power was very much a socialist party, the economy was suddenly opened up and there was a lot of investment coming into South Africa. Uh, it's not as a result of good governance by, by the ANC. They just happened to be the party that presided over this system where the economy was freed up. And they actually thought it's because they were a good government. And Nelson Mandela was much more moderate than Thabo Mbeki, than his successor. And Thabo Mbeki was much more moderate than his successor, Jacob Zuma. Um, and, and so as, as time passed, this wave of international approval and this, the, the, the economic growth as a result of the freeing up of the economy subsided. And now our government, people are starting to see that the government is actually failing and the more people start to notice how they are failing, the more they need to find scapegoats and yeah, and blame everyone else for what's happening. So, so in that sense, and I think here's an important point just to get to your question as to what are the prospects. 
I don't think the prospects are very good. There are people you always find optimists who say, no, we just need to, to hold on and things that everything's going to gonna turn out great. But the problem in South Africa, and, and this is where the U.S. comes in, is the, the U.S., and I believe it was the Clinton administration back then, actually played a very significant role in in creating the system that we currently have in South Africa, in, in, in pushing for the ANC to become the government and in pushing for uh, a, a, a liberal constitution and all of this, and it was it was it was hailed uh, as the most liberal constitution in the world and as the best constitution in the world. But what actually happened was the system that we currently have in South Africa gave and still gives tremendous power to the state president. Um, so, so the system. I don't think the system is sustainable. We we have a ruling party that is a socialist movement, and and they are given an a tremendous amount of power by the Constitution. Now, if you have a peace-loving, uh, free market-loving president, that's good. But but the problem is we have a president who who thinks socialism is a good idea, and this president has, has tremendous authority to appoint people all around him. Uh, so we have checks and balances, for example, in the, in the system to ensure that government does its job properly, but the people who are, who, who are appointed... In, uh, to preside over these checks and balances are appointed by the president. So the president has to appoint the people who have to, to ensure that he does his work. And now, of course, if you have a, a president that believes in government, centralizing power in the government and in socialism, they simply appoint their friends or people who are political, uh, part of the political elite. So, so I don't think the prospect is very good, and I would go as far as to say that that there's a moral duty on, on, on particularly the U.S., to at least speak out about what is happening in South Africa, given that, that the U.S. played a role in creating the system that we currently have in South Africa that, that simply isn't a sustainable system. Well, it seems that the politicians, and uh, even including this administration, are very uh, uh, at a loss uh, of, of what to do, if anything, about South Africa. Um, Obviously, you've got an electorate there that is uh, predisposed uh, toward these, you know, Marxist uh, enticements. And um, yeah. and uh, I know that, uh, the, the, as I said, there's a, a media blackout here, it would seem, when I went searching for articles on this, that was very, uh, very slim of uh, the coverage in, in the, uh, the main, uh, you know, organs of news. Uh, I guess I would ask, um, has there been any uh response from the rest of the international community uh including you know uh, the european countries where the where the original south african settlers uh came from yes there, there actually i don't think that much from from europe itself um but there has been some countries from which we've had a good response actually one of the best responses we've had was last year when president trump tweeted about the problem in South Africa, saying that he's concerned about what's happening in South Africa and that he gave Secretary of State Mike Pompeo instruction to investigate the matter. We've had quite an interesting response from our country, such as Australia. So there's a lot of a lot of people who have left South Africa have actually immigrated to Australia to the extent that there's quite a South African constituency in Australia. And as a result of this, we've had some government leaders and politicians actively speaking out um, about what's happening in South Africa. We had the Minister of Home Affairs, uh, Peter Dutton, in Australia, saying that um, they they need to fast-track 
the visa process for people who want to leave South Africa to come to, to Australia. And that has resulted in quite some reaction from the South African government. Um, and, and I think what's also happening in Australia, and that's why we are in the U.S. now, is ordinary Australian citizens started talking about what's happening in South Africa more and more, to, to the extent that they were actually protest rallies in Perth and Sydney and, and, and so forth and Melbourne, where people were, were protesting against what is happening in South Africa. And the result of that was that lawmakers took serious notice of, of, of the problem. And uh, we are hoping, uh, at least for people in the U.S., to take note of what's happening in South Africa and to talk about it more. Because the more people talk about it, the more uh, lawmakers and, and government officials and people like the President and, and, and the Secretary of State will take notice of, of the problem and will 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 be inclined to publicly talk about this and to put pressure on the South African government to actively do something against the problem. Well, I've known uh, many uh, South, Africaners, uh, South Africans that have come to the United States and uh, they are productive and uh, intelligent, uh, smart people, good businessmen. Um, and I can think of a lot of countries in the world that would benefit greatly from, uh, from the farmer's uh, skills, uh, including uh, South Africa itself, uh, who seems to not realize the valuable resource that they have. In the short time we've got left, I guess I would, uh, would want to ask, uh, you know, South Africa is uh, home to many uh, mining interests and, and other big industries. Uh, I guess one have, has the uh, Marxist government uh, there in South Africa made any uh, noises about uh, confiscation of these industries. And, uh, and what is the response to all of this unrest and economic, um, I don't want to call it collapse, but uh, economic uh, dysfunction? that's rising in South Africa been from the international business community? Mm. Well, uh, I think one thing to stress here is the role that China is playing in terms of moving into South Africa. Oh, man. Uh, with multi-billion dollar projects, and, and of course this is welcomed by, by the South African government, uh, sort of a, a response to people disinvesting in South Africa, and then the response is, oh yes, well, that's, it's okay if people take the investments and leave, because that just China will just move in and, and pick up the ball. So, so that plays a role. And, and also there are quite a few, you could call it state monopolies, um, where it's, we have companies being run by the government, and according to law, you are not allowed to compete with them. And one such company is, is the electricity supplier, uh, which is a, a government-run company, and it's completely failing to the extent that we now have what we call load shedding, that they aren't able to provide enough electricity for the country. So the other day, about a week or so ago, to give an example, we had load shedding, and I, at my house, we Arched, had, on a Saturday, we are we running out of, of We are running out of time, and I don't want to um, jam you up against sure. the clock. I want to make sure everybody knows how to get your book. It's on Amazon. Yeah, it's sure. called Kill the Boar, South Africa's... Uh, complicity uh the government complicity in south africa's brutal farm murders you're also uh, the ceo of an organization called afroforum that you can find online at afroforum.co.za uh and ernst Rose, i want to thank you so much for being here and for bringing attention to this issue thank you very much and thank you for giving me the opportunity this episode is sponsored by schwans.com what are you having for dinner tonight hmm good question 
Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details. Whether you're moving in together for the first time. This can be your closet. Or you're a new parent to a little fur baby. Viva Paper Towels can help you maintain a clean home. They're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. So they clean like cloth, helping you pick up after your new pet in your new home. For an exceptional cloth-like clean, use Viva Towels. Visit vivatowels.com to learn more and start fresh with a clean feeling of home.